Good morning, Redemption Church. Good to see everyone here. If you have a Bible, open it up to Romans chapter 8. We've kind of been plowing through for the last several weeks, um, I think six now, um, on chapter 8, which in my opinion is one of the greatest chapters ever written. Um, the totality of God's saving work for sinners is all in there, so, and, and some. So we're going to pick up only one verse today, verse 28. Romans 8, 28. Let me start with this, though. Sovereignty. It means that God, as the ruler of the universe, has the right to do whatever he wants to do. How you doing? You okay with that so far? It also means that he has complete control over everything that happens. David wrote in Psalm 115, our God is in heaven and he does whatever he pleases. Daniel wrote in Daniel 4, all the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? Now how are you doing? We're picking up a verse here that um, if, you're not, um, if you're not cynical, you might read this and be a little uh, bothered. But let's read it and I'll ask you some questions and see what you think then. Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. I have one question. Is that true? Really? So let me ask you a series of questions. Um, a, a man in our church, Kevin Shuck, who has got his fingerprints all over ministry, all over the place. I mean, from, from redemption communities, he's training leaders and mentoring young men. He is deeply involved in the Ignite class for, for junior high, he is, or, or for sixth grade. He is at training tables. He is um, in the process of seeing if God would have him become an elder. Everywhere you look, Kevin's fingerprints are all over. Last week he had a stroke, and now his left side is not as functioning, at least as we know, like it will ever function again. All things work together for the good. About three months ago, we told you about A.J. Goss. A.J. was a young man who, um, who served in a worship team. He would do anything you asked him to do. He'd be everywhere all the time. He was an intern in student ministries, and he's riding his motorcycle to school in the morning and gets hit and dies. All things work together for good. I know of a family who's adopting a, a, trying to adopt a young boy, beautiful young boy, they're in the process, all things looking good, and then kind of towards the end of it here now, some arbitrary person claims rights to the child, slows everything down, and you know how you give your heart away to a child. You, you love, you can't help yourself, it's yours, and, and now you have to wonder whether it's going to be yours. He might belong to somebody else, and you have to question, does God work all things together for good? A man comes home and finds a note on the table from his wife, I don't love you anymore, in fact, I never loved you anymore, I'm out of here, I'm done. Broken man, broken home. God works all things together for good. That's what you said. You kind of said it with confidence, too. It makes me feel good. Um, seriously, so God works all things together for good, even those types of things. Tragedy and pain and sin. He works all that together for good. Now, we're in a verse today that, that uh, teaches us what God means by that. In fact, I would call it one of the most favorite verses for most Christians. It's the source of huge encouragement. At the same time, I think it's one of the most abused verses in all of Scripture. Because I think many Christians quote it kind of like that Bobby McFerrin tune of 1988. Don't worry, 
be happy now. You know that, that song? Like that's kind of their Pollyannic kind of feeling about this verse. Like God's going to sort it all out in, in, in the end. It's all good. It's kind of like the power of positive thinking. Don't stress. Everything's going to be all right. And they're thinking predominantly this side of heaven, it's going gonna, it's gonna to turn out somehow. You might not see it and it's going gonna, it's gonna to be good. Well, if you're honest, if you're really honest with this concept or this idea, you struggle with that perspective, as you should, because, because it just doesn't ring true. We know too much. We've experienced too much pain to think that, oh, this, it's all going to be good, whatever. There are two problems that I see as we begin looking at verse 28 that we have to at least observe and identify. One is that it promises something that's hard to believe, doesn't it? Because Paul starts out the whole verse with, and we know. Like it's the most confident, certain statement he could make about what God is doing in the future, and he says it like, we know. Now, I'm okay at times in my life to say, I hope. You know, I I don't know how this is going to work out. I don't know how someone's stroke or someone's disability or someone's death or something is going to turn out to be good, but I I hope so. It's kind of like the church looks at this verse and goes, okay, is it going to be all right? The, The other challenge with this passage is that it promises stuff we think it shouldn't include. Like all things, he says. Like we know that all things. Now, I'm willing to say some things. If I'm honest, I look at something, well, I can see how that might work into a good story. But but there at times will be one or two things you look at and go, I I don't know. Fair? And I'm just talking about how we experience the stuff in our world, in our life, that we wouldn't call good. So I, I want us to wrestle with those realities. There are some people who would just look at that stuff and still bury their head in the sand and say, it's all going to be okay. But there's no way, really, that everything turns out to be good. It doesn't feel right. can't be right. Sickness isn't right. Divorce isn't right. Right? Children born with autism or cystic fibrosis, that isn't good. And sometimes the church, now, I, now trust me, with sincere, well-intended hearts, misuses this verse and applies it to all sorts of circumstances, kind of like an explanation for everything. They just drop it on suffering. Say, hey, it's all going to be good. And you're there left carrying the bag of suffering and the difficulty of life. Going, I, I, I'm not certain I get the good. And at best, as a Christian, you're having to trust something you can't see. And I understand that. But, but uh, I think that kind of perspective of this verse is the exact opposite of what Paul is trying to do in his encouragement with this truth. So I believe if we get the right perspective of this one single verse, we will see a total transformation in how we interpret the things we go through in our life. I think if we see this clearly, it will prove how far God goes to get close to his children, his affections and his love and his intention for his kids. And I think it speaks volumes about how absolutely sovereign God is. There are so many things God is teaching us from this one simple uh, verse. So I'm going to give you four things to think about when it comes to verse 28 that are essential if you're going to understand what Paul intends here. Here's the first thing. If you're going to understand it, then you have to understand the subject of the sentence. The actor in the sentence is God. Absolutely essential. If you take God out of the picture of suffering and difficulties and things you don't like, then you're going to miss the point altogether. 
And it's not just that good comes from bad, whatever that means, or that even the fact that it involves all things. It's that God has an agenda for his people, that God is really specific and intentional for every one of us. That's what this passage teaches. Now, there's a little problem or challenge we have to identify here. I'm not, I'm not that in love with how the ESV uses or deals with verse 28. In fact, I want to use the NAS, and you'll see why in just a minute. I told the guys to put it on the, on the PowerPoint or ProPresenter, whatever it is. Um, some of you might have, have a NAS, but I want you to find the difference between what we read in the ESV and here, and tell me who the major player is, is in the story. And we know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God to those who have been called according to his purpose. Now, what's the difference between that and the ESV that we read? The phrase, God causes. God causes all things to work together good. Now, there's a reason why there's a difference. Multiple manuscripts say different things. NAS leaned into one. ESV leaned into another. But I'm going to suggest to you that the context of everything that Paul's saying in verses 28, 29, and 30 needs this clause. You don't get the gospel and you don't get sovereignty in suffering if you don't see that God causes all things for his people to work together for the good. God causes all things. In fact, I don't believe we'll ever understand it without this. Some people would view life like this, kind of like a crapshoot, you know. Um, Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. Some people treat life like karma. You get out of it what you put into it, and so what goes around comes around. Just make sure you're doing the right thing, and it'll work out for good. And they're the ones who would interpret this passage this way. Sometimes bad things happen. Don't worry. God shows up after all that mess, and he gets a broom out, and he sorts it out, and he puts it together, and it'll, it'll be good when it's all said and done. But the reality of it is this. God doesn't show up after the trouble and the strife and the tragedy. God is elbow deep in all of it, all the time. He is in the beginning of the tragedy, he's in the middle of the tragedy, and he's at the end of the tragedy, working all things to the counsel of his will, and for his children, we can say it's good. That's what Paul says. Now, if you don't understand that God causes, then you're going to struggle with how to understand this verse. I believe, I think the scriptures teach there's no such thing as luck, there's no such thing as chance, and in fact, if you're sitting here today and you go, well, I'm not certain, I buy it, let me just create a crisis for you, okay? You will run into heresy if you don't believe that God causes, and here's why I say that. First of all, if if you suggest somehow that God isn't involved in the difficult circumstances, the specific ways in which we experience suffering and loss in our life, then you're suggesting a God, one who is unaware, potentially. That he's not all-knowing. Like he was surprised by your suffering just as, as you are. Like I didn't know that was coming. Boy, man, if I knew, God would say, I'd get in front of that, but oh well. Got a problem, right? Or you suggest a God that knows, but he's not all-powerful and he can't stop it. Like I see it happening. I know what's going to happen, but I have no ability to, to change it or to stop it. That's a problem, right? Or... You create a God who knows and can do something about it, but he doesn't care. And so, therefore, he just lets us go through the pain and suffering. He's got no intention. He just kind of watches us like we're in in an aquarium, and he gets gets his kicks watching us respond to things that he's 
control. That isn't true either because the Bible says God is all-knowing. It says that God is all-powerful. It says that God is all-love and care, right? Isn't that what it says about God? So somehow we have to sort out this all things in life with the perspective that God is in it from the beginning. It's absolutely essential if you miss this part. The only answer to tragedy we have is God. He's in the beginning. He's in the middle. He's in the end. It's, it's not that God rescues us from this hurt. It's not that God is going to just turn everything around. And by the way, this, this temporary little physical hurt, just t- trust me, tomorrow you'll have a huge bank account and you'll have a wonderful, you know, there are a lot of theologies out there, churches that teach this stuff, that God wants you healthy and happy and wealthy and all that stuff. But here's the reality. Pain is real and the scriptures never, ever tell you not to respond to it as if it isn't real. It is real. The point of what we read today is really simple. That in spite of all the suffering and tragedy, God is in it with us. Amen? God's in the midst of it. And Paul says this emphatic statement, and we know. Now, we know some things, but we don't know the how of the some things. I don't know how tragedy or suffering or, or strokes or death or sickness ever equals anything good, but God does. I just know that the conclusion is good. So, is Paul saying that whatever happens is good? No. Is he saying that suffering and evil are good? No. Is he saying just keep grinning and smiling because everything's going to be fine in the end? Kind of that Pollyanna thought? No. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that we're going to understand why God allows those things to happen. Here's what he's doing. He's showing us that God is simply at work in the lives of his children, right? We don't know how these circumstances equal good, but we know they do. That's all he says here. So let me just encourage you, church, start with a sovereign God who loves you, who knows everything, and has a power to do something about it. It means he's intentional with your life. And everybody's life looks different. Everybody's pain looks different. Some people go through horrendous amounts of tragedy and suffering, and some people look like they have it made. And God is sovereign, and God's doing his work. That's the first thing you have to understand to get this. Second thing, ready? You got to see the big picture. You notice the phrase there in verse 28 that God, it says here, if we're going to use the NAS here, if you could put it back up, Jordan. There, Uh, And we know that God causes all things to work together. That phrase, work together, is essential to understand. It's it's one word in the Greek that is used to uh, define synergy. You understand what synergy is? It's what happens when you take multiple elements and put them together and form something good that couldn't happen unless you put them together. It's synergy, okay? So um, I went on a website this week called (laughs) allrecipes.com. I did it for you. Okay, so ladies, hold me accountable and see if I'm somewhat close. The recipe for cake involves flour. You just stop me whenever I'm wrong. Um, butter, eggs, vanilla extract, baking powder, sugar. Yeah, I missed sugar the last time. Something's wrong with my cake, I think. <laughs> That's what makes a cake. Now, let me ask you a very simple question. Have you ever sat down to a wonderful heaping bowl of flour? <laughs> How about vanilla extract? Some guy in the 8 o'clock said, yep, I did. (laughs) Big bowl of butter. No, it's ridiculous to think not because you know it takes the synergy of the ingredients to produce something good and tasty like cake, right? 
Cake is a wow. Because you take these, I would never eat baking powder, but put it with all these other things, it turns out pretty, pretty good. And that's exactly what Paul is talking about, about the work of God in all things. He works together all things. He takes the good, he takes the bad, he mixes it together, and what comes out the other end someday in glory is good. Okay? That's what Paul says here. But I get the problem. Sometimes, and I, uh, it's true for everybody, when pain and suffering and difficulty happens, it's like right there, isn't it? For all of us. It's like you're sitting down to a bowl of baking powder. All you can see is that one ingredient, and it hurts so bad, and you can't see anything good coming from it. And I understand that. We struggle with the big picture. And we look at the things, even if we're sympathetic towards people who are going through suffering, even then it makes us struggle because we don't have explanations for why someone lives a life of depression, even though they know there's a God and a Savior and his name is Jesus, even though that God is the, the sovereign healer of sickness and they struggle with that. And we don't have an answer for that. It seems that we see things like one family is prosperous and the other one is poor. Some people take good care of themselves and die of cancer very young. Other people eat out of a garbage can and seem to live forever. I don't know how to make sense out of it all. But if we isolate any one of our stories, any one of our particular circumstances, we're too close to it. We can't see the purpose in it. If we can't see the purpose in it, we just assume that there must not be one. God can't be doing something good with this mess. It doesn't feel right. But here's what Paul is suggesting for us. Get the big picture. Back up and see that all these events are being weaved together over time, throwing a little bit of God's heat to produce good. That's how it happens. In fact, I think it produces a good that can't happen any other way. There are things that God is doing in the individual lives of every believer that will not happen unless we go through the difficult circumstances none of us would, would vote for or sign up for. So... If I were to use an illustration, let's use the illustration of Joseph. And I'm certain you know and have heard this story. Joseph was a young man, one of 12 sons of Jacob. Um, Joseph, his, his brothers had a problem with Joseph. He was the favored son. They sell Joseph into slavery. Off he goes to Egypt, right? He doesn't know anybody. He's 17 years old. His brothers hate him. He's gone. Now he's living in Egypt. Um, trying to make a go of it, living in Potiphar's house. He's falsely accused by his, uh, his master's wife, and he gets, in, he gets put in jail, and that's kind of a stinky story, right? And we ultimately know how that concludes. Joseph ends up the second command of Egypt, and God does amazing work. Now, let me just ask you a series of questions based on that very simple, fast description of Joseph's life. It wasn't good for Jacob to play favorites with his sons, was it? Like, no father should pick a kid and say, you're going to be special. And by the way, I'm going to let everybody know about it. Here's a coat so everyone sees you coming. <laughs> it's not good for father to do that, and yet that's what happened, right? It's, it's not good for Joseph to kind of get puffed up about it and lord it over his brothers. That wasn't good, was it? It wasn't good for Joseph's brothers to hate him. It wasn't good for them to sit around and plan to kill him. It, it, it wasn't good to take Joseph and kind of sell him off to slavery, maybe worse than death, because now he has to be in servitude for his whole life. It, it wasn't good for Joseph to have to be a young man alone in a foreign country under all the weight of all the expectations of a slave master. That's not, that's not right. That's not good. 
It wasn't good for, for his brothers then to concoct a, a story to dip his coat in blood and suggest to their father that he was killed by wild beasts just to break his dad's heart. That wasn't good, was it? Come on, you know the answer. It wasn't good, was it? It wasn't good for Joseph then to, to be working in his, in his master's house to be accused by his master's wife and have to go to jail for it. It wasn't good, was it? And yet, God was doing something bigger. He was doing so much more. God, in his wisdom, in his love, in his power, had the big picture in mind. He took it all together, took all those ingredients, and he produced good. And this is how Joseph would describe the good. Now, these are from his words. Now, he's the one suffering. He's the one going through the tragedy. Here's what he says about the big picture. Talking to his brothers, what you meant for evil against me, God meant for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive. Joseph was in a strategic position, second in command of Egypt who had most of the resources and most of the food in a time of drought and famine who rescued God's people from, from starvation. God sees the big picture. And somehow Joseph in his older age can look back at all the difficult things, all the things that he would call not good and say, here's what, here's what you meant for it. Here's what Here's what sickness feels like. Here's what tragedy feels like. Here's what people breaking up feels like. But here's what God's doing. He's doing good stuff. Somehow he is so sovereign, he can take the mess and put it together to produce something beautiful. Amen? So, I understand that single moments and experiences may appear to be bad and evil. But if you back up, you might see something different. I used to think, and I've told you this before, I, I used to think that uh, the Christian thing was pretty easy. And I'm 52, going on 53 years old now, and I've learned this one um, unbelievable truth about myself. I am far more dark and sinful than I ever thought I was. And I can tell you that that I wish, I wish I was never as sinful as I was. I wish that stuff wouldn't come out of me. But here's one thing I've learned. That the gospel and the preciousness of what Jesus saves a sinner from has gotten so much bigger and so much more beautiful in my life than it ever could be if I had it buttoned down and I was a, I was a spiritual stud. And I'm not. And so somehow God can even get glory out of me saying, ah, I just love your gospel. I love grace. And that's, that's at least one win, right? And I can see at least at this vantage point of my life, that that's a good that God's produced in me, to love his gospel. There, there's a third thing you have to understand if you're going to get this passage correctly, and that is we've got to understand what Paul means by good. Because after all, that's the point, really, what Paul is talking about. Because I know what we think of. If I said, all right, folks, let's, let's create a list of good, and we would start with things like happiness and wholeness and health, and we would start talking about vacation homes and you know, things that we like, you know, kind of the, the Vulcan philosophy, live long and prosper, that kind of mindset, you know, that's what we think of when we think happy, but that's simply not the definition of God about good, okay? So I want to take you to verse 29 and show you how God defines this word, good. Paul says this in verse 29, continue in his thought, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Here's what Paul says, the good that God's planning for us, conformity to the image of his son, Jesus. 
waiting for a yippee, way awesome. See, that just exposes us. We don't get the good God has for us. We prefer another kind. That's God's intention. God's agenda with all of his children is transformation to shape us into the image of Jesus who loved God preeminently above all things and hates sin above all things. That's what God is doing. He is working each individual story, each particular event in our life, tragedy, good or bad. He's weaving them together to continue to shape us to look like Jesus. Anybody want to say amen to that? That's what he's doing. That's God's angle to work on his kids every single day throughout life that one day we will look like Jesus. In fact, Paul says he's predestined it. That's what he's, he's had planned from the very, very beginning of time before you ever worked was to shape you into the image of Jesus. And therefore, there's some so what to this, and you got to listen very carefully. Anything, and I mean anything, anything that makes you and I more like Jesus, therefore, is ultimately what? And anything that doesn't is ultimately what? <laughs> you didn't want to say it, did you? <laughs> Bad. And here's what I'm saying. Here's the kicker. Even sometimes the things we call good can be in the way of transformation. God gives the gift of life, and sometimes we can love our life more than we love our God. God gives the kiss, gift of kids, and sometimes we can love our kids more than we do God. And God can give the, the gift of, of wealth, and sometimes we can love our possessions more than we love God. God can give the gift of abilities, and sometimes we can love what we do more than we love God. And God is coming after the things we replace him with because he wants us to have the ultimate good. Amen? That's what he's doing. He's committed to our transformation. Someone once said it this way. In the providence of God, we learn more in the darkness than we do in the light. In, in other words, sometimes we learn more by being sick than healthy. I'll bet if I brought Kevin up here today and said, Kevin, why don't you teach today? What he would tell us would be, I've learned this about God. Sometimes we learn more by being afraid than being confident and sure of ourselves. Sometimes we learn more from the hurting than we do from the wholeness and the happiness God takes everything, tragedies, sickness, stupid choices, and even our sin, and he weaves it together to bring about good, good that Paul says is transformation to the image of Jesus. That's an awesome truth, and ultimately, that's our problem. That's our hang-up right there, because I prefer a different good. Let's be honest. If I said, here's, here's all of the ways in which you're going to suffer and hurt over the next 60 years of your life, but trust me, the end run is transformation, you're going to be like Jesus. And then I gave you the opposite and said, well, here's what you're going to have, blessings and happiness and wholeness and everything you ever wished for, but it ain't going to end in transformation. I think it'd be a tough vote. But God's committed to that in us. Scriptures are full of statements and examples of people who suffered much, had very little to nothing, and they were described as people of great peace and great joy, Also, so much so that it's indescribable and full of glory, like the ultimate measure of peace and joy, which is what people are shooting for, by the way, is found not escaping suffering and tragedy, it's by seeing God in the midst of it as he changes us into the image of Jesus. And I want you to hear me on this. You need to trust me that God's good is good, okay? This is not like your mom telling you eat your vegetables because they're good for you. This is really better. What, whatever you're searching for, we could put at the end of that statement, I, I just want to be happy. 
fair. I think the pursuit of happiness is a God-given trait. The problem is we're messed up and we can't see how to find happiness, so we invent ways, ways that are counter to true happiness. But the gospel intersects us right there to provide the ultimate happiness and joy and peace in Jesus. Somebody say amen to that. That's the truth. God has taken all those circumstances, and you should have done the math already in your mind. And my guess is you have. You're sorting out the things you don't like about your life. But God has taken all those things, and that includes the worst, someone who hurts you, some sin you struggle with, some doubt when you're afraid, and he's always, always on duty working on us, and nothing ever happens outside of his control. There are no mistakes, and there are no surprises. He is being very specific with you. One last thing we got to understand to get this passage right. I want you to understand that this passage does not apply to everyone. Back to the text, it says here, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are, what? Called according to his purpose. In the simplest terms I can make it, this promise of Paul from God to make all the junk in our life turn out to be transformative and good only applies to Christians. Not people who are okay with Jesus or people who sit in a church chair on Sunday mornings. I'm talking about people who confess their need and their sin, who have only one hope, and that is that Jesus somehow could take our sin and be fully punished for it and transfer his righteousness to us, and by faith we go free. That's a Christian. Not just an assent, a mental assent that he's okay, but you really, really believe your need needs a Savior. That Christian faith then this promise is your promise. But if you're sitting on the edge, kind of being okay with Jesus, then it's not your promise. All things aren't going to work together for the good. There isn't transformation coming. All you have, right, is this truth. Right now, all the suffering and tragedy and sin and the ramifications of your decisions, this is as close to heaven as you're ever going to get. And the rest of it's just unspeakable. And as bad as it is now, this is as good as it's going to get if you don't know Jesus. And Paul's just simply saying, to those who love God and who have been called by God according to his purpose, this is your promise, this is your anchor, this is your hope. He will take the tragedies and the mess and work it out for his good in our life. Look at, look at how Paul finishes his thought. Now remember in verse 29, he introduced us to the idea of being uh, predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus. Now look at the whole statement of this transformative work in verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Right there, one sentence, the full picture of salvation. God, before time and eternity, decided and chose and predestined those to believe. He did the work by calling us into repentance. He does the justifying work to make us right before God, and he has a future hope of glory for us one day. Transformed bodies and fully restored people. Amen? That's what he's promised. And so I, I want you to understand something. J just as I finish here, because I know there was a sneaky little thought in here that somebody might twist, okay? And that is the phrase, to those who love God. Because I want you to get this. Loving God is not a condition. It's a description. And here's why I have to say this. Some of you might have read that or heard that passage like this. Okay, I want the good to be the conclusion. I, I want good in my life, so I better, I better love God. And the good is directly connected to how much you love God. Like somehow if you have a bad day, or if you fall away, or if somehow your faith runs dry and you become apathetic and your affections grow cold, that somehow maybe good's not going to come of it. 
How many of you have ever struggled with your spiritual life and, and wondered if God was close as he promised? You don't want to twist this passage to assume that, man, it's all on your fervor. It's all on your faithfulness. It's all on your effort to try to get close to God as you can, get close to God as you can, as long as you hold that love very carefully, that God will then take your, your messes and your life and work it out to good. No, what Paul is simply describing is the reality of every Christian. Every Christian. We love him because he what? Right? The affections of God are from God. God changes our hearts and our wants to, 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 to love him. And that's the true condition of every legitimate believer in the world. Strong ones and weak ones. It's true of every devoted believer and every wandering believer. It's true of every saintly, godly person and every sinful struggler. This truth of God's love that comes out of our life has come, comes from one place, and that is the love of God poured out in our lives. You don't hold on to it. He holds on to you. So therefore, this promise is a guarantee. It's going to finish good, church. It's going to finish good. He's going to take the mess. And I don't know what your mess is. I can only assume that it's one you don't like. He's going to take it and weave it together to shape your life to look like Jesus. And you will know one day it was all good. It was all good. He's a heart changer. He gives us his spirit to live inside of us. He transforms us. And he takes that mess and he makes good from it. God is great, amen? God is sovereign, amen? Amen? He's sovereign over the, he's sovereign over the blessings, he's sovereign over the tragedies, and he's always on the job working in us. And that's why we worship him, Right? It's hard to even get in our head how big and awesome and how much he does for us, but that's why we worship him. That's why we remember him. You know, the night that uh, Jesus was betrayed, he sat with his disciples, and I think um, probably uh, focused on the totality of the saints who had always struggled remembering what he was doing. And he told us, church, kind of 2,000 years ahead of time, every time you get together, remember what I'm doing. Everything I said to you today would be pointless and foolish if there wasn't a God who came on a rescue mission for sinners. And so, we hold this piece of bread as a representation that Jesus had to have his body broken so that we could be made whole. He, he took the cup after supper and he said, this, this is the co new covenant of my blood. As often as you get together, drink it in remembrance of me. So we're going to hold a cup in a little bit. And remember the work of Christ on our behalf. And everything that we saw today about God's beginning and middle and finished work of good in our life comes from one source, and that is the work of Christ for sinners like us. Amen? Amen? I'm going to pray, and the ushers are going to serve us this morning, but I would love for us to just spend a moment thanking God for the good he's producing in our lives. So let's pray together. God, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you so much for uh, your faithfulness to the plan that you started before we ever were, to redeem for yourself a people and then transform them, and to take all the messes that we create and weave them together to transform us into the image of our beloved Savior, Jesus. God, we have to confess that there are times that's hard to understand, and sometimes it's hard to even believe, but you are. So we take this verse by faith, that you cause all things to work together for the good, 
for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. God, we claim Christ. We confess our sins. We understand that without Jesus, there is no hope. But in Jesus, there's life and peace. Thanks for that, God, we pray. Amen.